calling all consumer goods, business owners, and marketing professionals. Does planning content ahead of time stress you out? Do you want to run Instagram and Facebook ads, but just aren't sure where to start? If your answer is yes and yes, then our mini course was made for you. It's 100% free and packed with essential tactics that you can implement as soon as today. To join in, visit our website at umaimarketing.com slash minicourse. All right, let's get on with the pod. Welcome to the Umai Social Circle, where we talk consumer goods marketing tips to help business owners and marketers alike grow. I'm Allison, and that's Karen. We're, we are the co-founders of Umai Marketing, and we're being joined here today with Caroline Bobacher, principal at Springdale Ventures, the Austin venture capital firm growing CPG brands like CC's Veggie Noodles, Mosey Baby, and FitJoy. Welcome, Caroline. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thanks. Well, we're excited too. So just a quick recap on how we know Caroline. So we worked with Caroline at a canned vodka soda company um, maybe a year or so back, and she was the co-founder there, and we were the marketing team. So that's how we met. Um, We'll get a little bit more into that, but first we want to do a deep dive into your background. So you studied law and became a lawyer out of school, right? Yeah. Uh, so I um, did my JD MBA at SMU. And the whole time that I was doing my law school classes, I was like, oh, I really don't want to practice law. <laughs> I wanted <laughs> to work with startups. I know, right? I wanted to work with startups. Um, and my MBA concentration was in strategy and entrepreneurship. I was taking the starting a business class and writing business plans and taking venture capital and private equity finance classes. And just that's where my heart was. And I didn't know how to justify like, I'm a little bit fancy, a little bit high maintenance. I got to have a certain like standard of living, but also I want to work with startups and they don't pay anything. So like, what do I do? So I was tweeting about startup stuff, uh, mostly to kiss up to a business school professor <laughs> whose class I was taking on Twitter. And he tweeted a lot, tweeting about startup stuff and a startup attorney followed me. And I was like, wait, what's a startup attorney is a thing? What is that? Yeah, I uh, kind of stalked him through Twitter, found the firm, and like the rest is history. That's where I ended up clerking. I got an offer, and I spent like the first uh, four years of my law career at that uh, boutique venture fund. Wow, yeah. Okay, so what? My boutique venture firm uh, that focused on serving startups and entrepreneurs. Okay, so what kind of things were you doing, like specifically? Yeah. So as a young attorney, so we were doing anything from your very first corporate needs, like entity formation, Mm. like organizing your corporate governance documents, like really sexy stuff. (laughs) Um, And then from there, your very earliest needs, which are usually like service agreement kinds of contracts or bringing on employees and then through capital raising. So our core area of expertise was early stage capital raising. So a lot of friends and family rounds are probably where I spent most of my time in seed rounds. And then a couple series A rounds. Um, we did, the, the firm did some, some work, you know, further down the chain, but that's really where I spent the most of my time. Um, and just, it, it continued to fuel that love of startups and working with them and doing anything I could to help them move the ball forward. You know, being yeah, because you were... Very- yeah, being an attorney is not a very sexy thing. Uh, it's paperwork, and, like a lot of paperwork, a lot of times, right? <laughs> yeah, and and it it can if you it can feel like that some days. Like, don't get me wrong, some days 
lawyering felt like a slog. But for the most part, it was the underlying purpose that got me super excited to go to work every day, right? That every day I'm helping an entrepreneur move the ball forward. And a lot of cases, a lot of our clients were the very earliest stages. Like they had mm -hmm. just formed the business. They've got an idea. They haven't refined their business model yet. They often don't even have a product. And so if they have you on the phone or they're sending you a quick email, they might also ask you a question that's not legal. That's about their business strategy. And so to have that opportunity to also kind of put my MBA to work was really fun and rewarding and satisfying. Yeah. Because you were with these companies since inception, basically. So, so you, were you see some of them grow, but you see some of them die too. Like mm -hmm. that happens where you'll bring in a new client. You're really excited about them. And then next year they don't exist. Oh yeah, that's tough um, and tough to hear as a business owner, but um, were some of these uh, brands that you worked with CPG brands? Is that how you got into that field? I'm trying to think. I mean, yes, because it was my client that approached me to come work, work with them. Um, so yeah, some of them were CPG brands. I'm trying to think, uh, but really they ran the gamut. Anything from true small businesses that were services focused all the way to more venture investable kinds of startups. Um, and at the time I was primarily in Dallas, but then uh, came back to Austin. So there's definitely a difference between the types of startups that you see between the two towns. Although CPG is really exploding in Dallas too, and they have skew up there now. So I, I'm curious if I was a, you know, a day one attorney all over again in Dallas, what the makeup of the clients would be because it's changed so much. This is the ecosystems are evolving in Texas, which is really cool to see. And how long ago was that? Like how I was there. Let's see. I graduated in 2016. So I guess I started with them in 2015 as a clerk mm -hmm. and then left in 2019. And correct me if I'm wrong, you really got started with on Twitter, on social media. <laughs> like you, that's how you got your first job. Really? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I never set foot in the career off, career center at SMU, which is probably like my bad and like a wasted opportunity. But a lot of law school career centers and 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 business school for certain are for, to a certain extent are set up to to get, to funnel you towards a particular type of job, right? Like a lot of the business school students end up in consulting or in investment banking. Like there's a there's a couple, you know, recruiters that come to campus and they do their thing. Same thing with law school where it's really designed to funnel you towards big law. And that's just not where my heart was. I realized pretty early on through my clerkships that I have to be really close to my work to be really excited about it, right? Like I have to almost hold it a little too tight to do great work. Um, and so for me, that didn't mean compiling thousands of pages of documents and then sending them off to a corporate client who I may never meet or see. And it, in the case of my clerkship was on the floor below us in the same building. And I never met anybody there. I like working with small businesses and with venture backed startups because it is so tangible. It's so real. It's so personal. And everybody is so invested. Um, there's an intensity there that I just, I think drives it. It's, it works for me and it drives, it makes me excited to do my work. I totally agree on that. <laughs> well, so how did you segue from law into the CPG world? Yeah, it was a pretty abrupt transition where uh, my client at the time 
we'd had, uh, well, let me back up a little bit. When I first came to Austin, I was like, hey, I know one of the biggest, baddest founders of a CPG company. I'm going to go chase that business. So that's how I reconnected uh, with the person uh, who ended up becoming my client. He had moved on from his last CPG venture and he came to me and was like, hey, I have this idea. I'm like, that sounds awesome. And I was thinking about it. I was like, that's, that's a really good idea. I believe in that product. I believe in that vision and, I, and in that team. And I sat down with him and told him like, uh, I will, I've always known um, when I, I know it when I see it and I will follow you off the cliff and build the airplane on the way down if there's a place for me in this. So a couple months went by, he came uh, to my firm as a client and we formed the entity and got it started. And uh, when a couple, a little bit of time had gone by, I hadn't heard anything. He and, he and his other partner invited me out to the distillery to sample products. So I just went out there thinking I'm your attorney. I'm here to taste this and, you know, just be here. And they're like, do you want to join us? <laughs> and 18 hours later, I quit my job. It was a no brainer for me. I had, I was restless. I was ready to move on. I knew this was the opportunity and I just, I didn't, hesitate. I, and coincidentally, I had a trip up to Dallas to go talk to our law clerks about business development and give them a little like a uh, seminar on that. So I went up there for that, like gave that lecture and then walked into my partner's office and was like, I'm sorry, this is my notice. It was very surreal. 18 hours later, <laughs> I, you don't hear stuff like that very often making that big of a career jump. And that's one of the things that I knew, but that I also don't think my partners knew that um, law is like very much an apprenticeship, right? Like I had mentors, I had teachers within my firm, uh, and it's a very specific path. And if you step off of it, I don't get any credit for like what I've learned or the work I've done, like away from away from law and away from that desk. If I left at this point, and learned all this stuff, I'm still coming back to law if everything falls apart at that same spot. So it, it was definitely a gamble, but like, I'm okay betting on me. And I believe, you know, in this product and uh, the team that was being put together, like it, it just made sense. So I didn't hesitate. Yeah. I really like that because it's just like, take those exciting opportunities. Don't overthink it and just jump in, you know? <laughs> and like you said, and you believe in yourself. So you know, you could do it. And to be fair, like, I don't have any other responsibilities, right? Like it's me and my dog. I don't have to, I don't have to feed children. I don't have a spouse. Like we're not juggling mm -hmm. two jobs in a single household. Like I have every advantage and the flexibility to do that. So it's a combination of yes, being ready for it, but also a little bit of luck, right? Right place, right time. Mm -hmm. And having everything else in place that you can make that move. Yeah, I love that honesty about luck because some people think it's all hard work and it's all what you put into it. And I believe that's so much of it, but a little bit of it is luck sometimes. And I feel the same way for our business too. So um, that is incredible. So what are some of the pain points that you saw now that you were part of the consumer packaged goods industry? 
Yeah. Um, so this is not going to be surprising or exciting, but like, you know, the boys club phenomena is not unique to corporate culture. And it's also not unique to tech. You know, you hear about it in tech and you read stories and lawsuits about the, by those like Emily Kramer at Carta or Francoise, I think it's Brugere of Pinterest. Like this is a common theme, um, but it's very much alive in CPD. We are so lucky at Springdale to see a more diverse selection of founders, um, women and people of color, but we still have a long way to go. Um, and so one of the initiatives I've recently gotten involved with here locally in Austin is Beam, which I don't know if y'all have heard of, but it's a new angel network in Austin that focuses on backing female founders. And this is so awesome because it works to solve part of the problem around female founders and them not getting funding. Um, I think less less than three percent of venture dollars go to women or female or teams with a female founder on them. Like that's insane. To put that kind of into perspective, I think it was around three and a half billion dollars last year went to women founded companies, and five billion dollars is what got sunk into WeWork. So, like that was one deal, and that was more. Mm-hmm by a billion and a half dollars than all the funding that female founded companies received. Like that's not right. But there's another part of that. There's two other pieces to that equation. So it's like you have female founded companies that are having a hard time getting funded, but there are two other parts of this, uh, of this problem that need to get addressed. One are female investors, right? So female investors make up less than 15% of, of venture investments there aren't enough women at the table, period. And female investors make a huge difference, right? So uh, VC firms that added, I think, 10% to their partnership for females uh, experienced a 10% 10 more profitable exits, right? Like it's good business to have female investors. And then the third piece of that is female employee equity ownership. So women make up 35% of... um, equity holders in startups, but they only hold 20% of the equity. So Beam is just one of the ways here locally, I think that we're working to address this issue, right? Like it is money that is being funneled towards female founders. Female founders are more likely to hire, uh, you know, diverse teams and, uh, and allocate that equity among women a little differently. Uh, and then separately from female founding side, you also have the female investing side and beam angel network has kind of a like not a stewardship program but kind of a coaching program so if you're a young woman that is interested in angel investing someday you can kind of be you can be assigned a mentor i think they're called guardian angels um and work on becoming familiar with this space right because it's high risk high reward a lot of these companies do go to zero how can you step into this space uh with as thoughtfully as possible and beams working to kind of make that happen Love that. Um, So you're saying one of the big problems is there's not enough female investors because female investors invest in female founders. Partially, yeah. Yeah. Um, The data around, one, what happens to a team, like an investing team when they add a a woman to the team, like they are more profitable, the the returns on the fund increase, like that's undeniable. And then separately, they also invest in more female-led companies. So what what is your role with Beam? 
with Beam. I'm one of the founding, I'm on the founding committee. So um, because of my legal background, I help them uh, bring in some legal partners to support the network itself and make sure our form documents that are the, that underlie every single transaction that the network does are right and strong and within the, the parameters of what the organization is setting out to do and serve the investors. So kind of helping them get that set up. One of the things that will be um, special about Beam's documents that was also part of my CPG company and something I believe like really strongly and I'm excited that Beam has adopted is a bad actor investor removal provision. You hear these horror stories about women, female founders who are propositioned or their checks are conditioned. I know I have an anecdote about a female founder who was, who was sent a sexual consent form by a prospective investor. Like you can't make this stuff up. It's insane. And so the bad actor investor removal provision is like, Hey, we're demanding a higher standard of behavior from everybody, from all partners at the table. And if you cannot behave, you don't just get to keep running around writing checks and being blacklisted. Well, so the the organization will ultimately remove them. But the problem has been that companies like these startups that take a check from an investor because they need money have had no mechanism for removing bad actor investors. You just, what am I supposed to do? Sit there uncomfortable with this investor that has done something that has, I don't know, come up in the news repeatedly for DUIs or spousal abuse or whatever the case may be, there isn't a way to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. that's changing. So that was not the case at my last startup. We had a way to remove um, investors, you know, with unanimous vote and like proper procedure that was fair, but it's startups taking some of the power back, right. To say, we want to work with good people and we're going to hold you to a higher standard of behavior. And yeah, so it's kind of like you're in golden handcuffs once you enter that deal, I guess. <clears throat> yes. And so we'll, that's part of Beam. Like they are committed to, uh, a better ecosystem and better behavior and have put that in writing. And that's pretty special. Also, I will say um, as an attorney, if I was investor counsel, I would review that language and be like, don't agree to this. If you can avoid it, like there's, it's just a, some, a way for you to potentially lose your interest. Right. I was stunned how positive the response was from the investors that we talked to um, with my last, you know, with the last brand it, the response was overwhelmingly positive. Like people want to see this change and the people who are excited about it are the kind of people that you want to do business with. So it's a really good, um, it it has never been a problem and I don't foresee it being one. Um, I hope it's something that becomes more common in the startup ecosystem. Yeah. I love that, that they're taking control back. Yeah. And if an investor is against it or is in any way opposed to signing paperwork, like that's not someone you want to work with in in the first place. So that's really incredible. I haven't really heard a lot about the bad actor investors. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was drafted with the help of a bunch of attorneys here locally. Like I, I started it and then I crowdsourced it from some of the best, you know, uh, attorneys in town who are working venture deals all the time, right? Like, what would you like to see? What makes sense? Like, what's a balance between making sure the investor is protected? It's not like, I don't know, they treat about, they tweet about how much they love Trump and we're like, oh, got to get rid of that. Like, no, we're not, that's not designed for us to comment on your political leanings or whatever it may be. Um, if we wanted it to be balanced and fair. And so it has, um, input from, you know, local, uh, 
I don't know, expertise. And I'm, I'm thrilled that it was something that was kind of crowdsourced and then put back out into the ecosystem. What an awesome thing to be a part of. Let's talk more about your role as principal at Springdale Ventures. What, what's your day-to-day? What are you up to? Let's hear it. Yeah, a little of this, a little of that. Um, <laughs> It really depends on the day. And I still, I joined in July, so five months, almost six months. Um, it, I feel like I'm still very much getting my feet under me, but it can be everything from sourcing deal flow, review, uh, deal intake. So as the deals come in, figuring out which ones we want to take a closer look at, actually taking a closer look at them. Um, we discuss anything that gets, um, you know, through the door and is pretty interesting to us as a team. Uh, which is always really fun because the perspectives are so varied. Um, And then over to the other side, which is, you know, fundraising. People start, entrepreneurs, you hear about fundraising all the time. We don't often think about the not so sexy slog of raising money for BC funds. Um, And everybody who's raised the fund for a fund for a first time will tell you that it's probably the hardest thing they've ever done. So we closed uh, fund one on, in mid-November. We're officially done. And we're starting to think about fund two. What does that look like? Um, is it bigger? It will be. Uh, and then from there, because it's bigger, what do our new investors look like? Are they the same as the ones that were in fund one? If they're not, who else are we talking to? So working on building out that pipeline and thinking about who make the best partners because What's really special about one of the things that's really special about Springdale is that most of our investors in the fund are entrepreneurs themselves. And so we have a really deep well of talent and resources and expertise in the CPG space that we're then able to offer when appropriate to our portfolio companies. So fine, it's if we can be picky and take uh, money from people who are the best fit, that's awesome. Uh, but at the end of the day, all money spends the same and there will be some investors who write checks and, you know, just wait for their returns and we never hear from them and they're, you know, they're just more passive investors. Like both are great. Uh, and, but part of what makes Springdale special is that our LPs really understand CPG and, um, the space and the brands that we're supporting. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of mentorship involved. Yeah, so Springdale does sit on some boards. I do not sit on any yet because I'm, you know, new to the team and a principal. And the, um, but yes, there is a lot of mentorship. Like we are very accessible to our portfolio companies, to the executive teams there. Like we want them to call on us when they need us. Often though, it's like I can't even, uh, like I'd like to take credit for this, but sometimes the best source of mentorship uh, for our portfolio companies are our other portfolio companies. So um, they're able to all learn from each other and watching them connect those dots and get excited about meeting each other and learning from each other is really rewarding, even though we really have nothing to do with it. <laughs> it's just exciting, right? Like you yeah. feel the energy, you see these light bulbs go off and then they're yeah. off and running to their next, to conquer their, you know, their next hurdle. That's awesome. Yeah. We have a client now who just closed around with a, from a CP, some from CPG founders that have sold. And it's just like that effect of just like, I killed it on this brand. I've been just going to keep killing it. And it's just like a snowball. I feel like there's no stopping you at that point. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's exciting to see, right? So what does your firm look for in an investable CPG brand? Yeah, so we have a couple key parameters 
that are like, I guess they get gatekeepers, right? Like they're the, it's the threshold for a deal that we'll look at. And that's generally at least a million in revenue. Um, and not like not monthly recurring. I'm saying like it, you've, you've got a million in revenue. Cause that says to us, you have customers, you have an established brand, you have a viable product. There is something there. Um, so we invest in series C and series A deals. Um, and you're a dig typically a digitally native brand. Um, but that's not a hard requirement because obviously we have brands like Canteen and um, Beatbox, like li liquor brands aren't digitally native. <laughs> it's not possible. <laughs> that's not how it works. Um, and a lot of our food and beverage stuff, you know, is obviously outside that digitally native CPG brand with at least a million in revenue. That's like the quick and dirty summary. Uh, beyond that, when we start to look at metrics, whether it's, you know, your margins, your LTV, your cost of customer acquisition, all these things, I won't say we have hard and fast rules because it just depends on what industry you're in and then the stage of your business. Um, the more data we have, the more demanding we can be, but a company that has eight months of, I don't know, customers doesn't have a ton of information yet. So that's where the revenue piece I think is really important because it ensures that we have enough history to do enough homework to make sure something's a good investment. How much does the founder matter when you're looking um at these brands founders everything um it's great i mean great ideas are everywhere like i don't care how good your idea is can you execute and that's the that's the whole thing with startups is like there are lots of ideas there are lots of people out there doing the same thing we are looking at a deal right now that um we discovered a competitor that hadn't been mentioned in the slide that competitor has a three-year head start on him well, to me, a competitor is good news because it says uh, there's like this is going to fill a need, right? Um, and that that the founder of the competitive company uh, was an engineer and did not have the same kind of um, executive leadership history, startup experience um, that we see in this new founder. So they both have the same idea, and they appear to both have very comparable products. We're just betting that this founder is the one who's actually going to scale it and take it to, you know, a significant exit. So your founding team can make or break. Mm -hmm. And so like, what are the core, like the top things that you look for in that founder? Oh, this is so hard because again, it's one of those things where you know it when you see it, but it's really hard to put your finger on. A lot of the times it is part of it is experience, right? Like we um, having experience at a previous venture backed startup. I mean, were you a coder for them or were you, you know, chief of staff, like your, your position relative to that uh, says a lot. Also like how long were you there? Were you there through the seed round through the B round? Because you watched your company scale from probably double digit employees to triple digit employees and experience some real challenges as a company like that scales and grows and like what was your role in all that right so experience matters um and part of that also is industry experience right like our it's what you're doing now um where you came from and where you might have deep relationships or deep specific and like institutional knowledge it's key to your success uh but that's not always necessary right we got venture investment. I had no experience in the alcohol <laughs> business. <laughs> Knew a lot about startups. Uh, but, you know, as long as you have a team that fills in each other's weaknesses and you have your own core competencies, like that's, that matters. 
So really, I might say we look for experience, but that experience can either be, you know, educational, it can be industry experience, um, it can be domain expertise, like it looks different with different teams. Awesome. So what are some ways that a company can just instantly improve their pitch to potential investors? Um, do your homework, <laughs> which sounds like not that big of a deal, but you can find a ton of old pitch decks online, right? Like the old Airbnb and like Tinder ones are hilarious uh, to see in their first versions. I think and, I've read the Airbnb one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so it's, you can learn a lot by going through lots of reps of the decks of decks. Just look at them. And what you really should be looking at is structure they all pretty much always follow the same structure. And while you might think that's boring, it allows VCs or institutional investors, or even just investors in general who see tons of decks to get to the point as quickly as possible, right? Like you don't want to make it hard for somebody you're trying to get money from to figure out what you do and why they should care. Um, and sticking to that relatively standard uh, flow that you expect with pitch decks, is really helpful for whoever's looking at your deck. The other thing, and the other reason I say do your homework is because I uh, recently was able to talk to another vodka soda company and they were lovely to talk to, but it was very clear that they put my old company in their deck as a competitor and they were talking to me and they had no idea who I was or what I'd done before. And they were also unable to tell me how their business set, was, was positioned to win among competition. Um, mm. So had they done a quick Google of our one, our portfolio companies and two, uh, who they were talking to on the call, they would have been a little bit more prepared. Now I happily took the call because one, I wanted to know like what they were up to and see if they were potentially different, but then also to say like, one, you guys should do your homework a little bit more. And also, we it's important that you do your homework because if they had considered who was in our portfolio, they would know that we were precluded from investing in them. So I took the call because I wanted to know, are they doing something different? Well, it turns out they were. We can't invest in a directly competitive business. So it was, you know, it was a waste of time for both of us. So they would have yeah. had done their homework. They would have known that was in our portfolio and, you know, known that – it was a waste of time. However, I do think the phone call wasn't a waste of anybody's time because I was I was entertained, and I think I I want to believe I left them with some good advice moving forward, um, and get, you know sent them off with some new doors to go knock on. So, Godspeed, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'll see them, but they got to practice on you. Yeah. Um, so, how important in in that pitch deck is are things like. Uh, like mission statements and things like that. Do you really look at that? Um, or is it more about hard numbers? Um, it's both. We, we care, like mission statement is not a particular thing, but we care about brand, right? And your mm -hmm. mission statement is part of that. So right. to the extent that you have a thoughtful, cohesive, uh, appealing brand that makes sense with what you're doing, like we care about your mission statement that much, right? Like we're, mm -hmm. to the extent it's part of your brand. Um, but financials and, and the metrics matter. You, I don't know if you guys watch Shark Tank, you see it on Shark Tank all the time. Like for the love of God, know your business, like know your numbers, know your margins, know your channels. Like you almost immediately lose your credibility by not being able to speak to those things quickly and concisely. Um, 
So that, yeah, that's, an, that's another one. Like the, the, the financials matter, the metrics matter, and you being able to talk about them matters. If you can't and you're the CEO, that's okay. But your CFO or whoever, or your accountant or whoever is your partner in this that knows the answers should be with you on that call. Mm-hmm. That's great. <laughs> you brought up Shark Tank and we, I am a, I watch it religiously. So like, how accurate is that to like a reality of a pitch that you see? Um, I don't know that it's totally fair to compare them just because those are so highly edited and everything I've read about them suggests that they go on for hours. Um, our pitches, first pitch will be about 30 minutes. Um, generally, well, we try to keep it to 20. So that way there's, I say it's more like 20. So there's room for questions. Um, and then there's usually a follow-up call where we will lean in on you and kind of push on you about some of your metrics, right? Like we might have we might challenge the way you've calculated uh, LTV. We might have some questions about your margin and ways you plan to improve it. So yeah, it's uh, it just depends. But as far as Shark Tank goes, the one thing about Shark Tank that is so confusing, this is such like a nuanced venture thing. This is really dorky. They talk about when they're like, I'm selling, you know, I'm seeking $100,000 for 10% of my business. They're talking in post money terms and nobody in venture does that. They all talk in pre money terms. So that's the only thing from the show where I understand why they do it. Cause it makes the math like nice and tidy and clean. And the viewer can understand exactly what the founder is giving up, but capital raising outside of shark tank in the venture world doesn't function like that. We, t- we talk about pre money valuation. Can you explain that for everyone? Pre money evaluation. Yeah. So let's see if I, uh, I'm like not good on the fly math. So like hypothetically, <laughs> I'm trying to raise a uh, million dollars at a $5 million valuation. That's a $5 million pre-money valuation. So I'm not actually selling a 20% of my business. It's uh, 1 million out of 6 million because the post money valuation, my valuation of th- is 5 million today. My post money valuation will be 6 million. So they, investors bought $1 million of a $6 million valuation, so it's less than 20%. I don't know what that math is. I'm like, hmm, 8, 17%, 16%? I don't know. <laughs> less than Plus. 20%. <laughs> yeah, I don't know either. So. <laughs> Calculator and spreadsheets. Don't ask me to do apply. Um, yeah, thank you for that. Um, so I, we've kind of gone through this, but what is like your number one best piece of advice for a small CBG business owner that wants to get funded. Yeah. Um, I would go back to the point I just made, like know your business, know it forwards and backwards. And if you don't have all the answers, that's okay. But have somebody with you who at least can speak to the financials. If that's not your, uh, you know, if that's not your core competency, that's okay. Uh, you immediately undermine your credibility when you start fumbling around with some of your basics, like margins and your mm-hmm. channels and, like it just, I'm not saying you're dead in the water, but it's really hard to come back from that. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And as, as early stage startup entrepreneurs, you shall be eat, sleep, breathing your business. Um, it's a little worrisome if you don't know it, you don't have to know everything about your business, but your team should. Yeah. And that kind of brings us to something that I, I wanted to ask you because um you know, when you are in the startup or entrepreneurial stage, you're working nonstop. Um, and I know that you're a hustler as well, but I feel like you have a really nice grasp on work-life balance. <laughs> so just kind of give a little mentorship. How important do you think is, is work-life balance for anyone? 
I mean, I'm a big believer in hard work. I have, you know, I think that if you, that's what separates good from great, right? Is like, who's willing to study a little longer, push a little harder, network a little bit more effectively, like hard work matters. Um, but I felt this way about law where you have billable hours and quotas. I felt this way and I feel this, I felt this way in a startup and, and I, like, I feel this way about my career in general. Like it is a black hole and it will take as much as you give it and still need more. So it is up to you to draw the boundaries and the lines and like find that balance. It's really easy, especially early in our careers to like be the first one in last one out, like work really hard, especially I feel like for people around my age where we graduated in the middle of the financial crisis, like we know what it means to put our heads down and work, but nobody like your, your, your firm culture, your, your HR department is not going to set those boundaries for you. Um, and there will always like there, it's a, it's a monster. You can feed it and feed it and feed it and it will never be full. <laughs> so I'm a big believer in like healthy boundaries. I am a very, I'm an early to bed, early to rise person. I pretty much will not look at my phone after 9 PM. Now, if, if there's a slack that comes through and it's truly an emergency, like, of course I will get on something, but I am very lucky in that the world I live in is not life and death, right? Like, mm -hmm nothing, no, nothing's going to die. Nothing's going to fall apart. Like nothing is the end of the world. And that was something I wish I had applied more when I was doing the startup life, because after a certain amount of pressure, like you, it's, it's just not sustainable. Right. I, I wish I'd come to that realization a little bit sooner over there because yeah, it's, it's business, right? Like these are business problems. They all have a solution. Everything is solvable. Mm -hmm. It's not worth it. Like you said, out. it's not yeah. life or death. <laughs> Um, and just some background there. So Caroline like climbs a mountain like every other week. So that's what I'm talking about. She's going fishing every day. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's I'm like, no, like Instagram versus reality is like very real. Like <laughs> there are days when I'm crying in my closet and those are not on Instagram. But uh, yeah, the, the outdoors is a really big part of like me staying sane. Um, mm -hmm. It's why I've kind of spent time away from Austin this year, just so I have more outdoor access because it by showing up for myself outside and making this time, I am able to better and more fully show up for my team members and for our portfolio companies like it and, and for my family and for the people who have to live with me and be around me. You know, it's everybody wins. Right. Everybody wins if you make a little space for yourself. Right. Oh, so, that is some good advice for absolutely everyone. Right. And I love, you know, like set boundaries early. And do, do you let your team know, like, these are my boundaries? Or does it just come up when you cross that bridge? Not, I mean, not that I feel like I'm very, very lucky to have a team that gets it right. Like the, and also I'm the least busy of my team members. Uh, both my partners, Dan has three daughters, Jen has a son. Um, COVID has completely changed the game for work from home parents. Like I'm like single moms are the superheroes of COVID. I don't know how they haven't lost their minds yet. I'm sure they, many of them have, but like the, what I have me and my dog, right. It's easier for me to be flexible and I'm happy to do that, but they have families that they love and they have really interesting hobbies. I mean, Jen camps and is like way more hardcore than I am. Uh, they all have interesting, rich, round, full lives. And that makes 
us all like willing to pitch in when somebody's trying to go on vacation or, you know, but everybody's a little bit more understanding. I don't know. Like I, I don't feel like I've had to need to set boundaries here in the way that I look back and think about some of my time in a law firm or when I was doing startup life, it, they were just different. And it when I was a young attorney. I didn't really consider it uh, as a startup found, you know, running a startup. I didn't think I needed, I just thought it would pass. Mm-hmm. And now I work with a group where it's just part of our culture. So um, I have a friend who recently made the transition to a private law firm and she's like, she was asking for advice. And I was like, draw the boundaries now, because mm-hmm. if you become the person that is the go-to for everything last minute, 11 PM, we got to get it done by tomorrow morning. You will become that person. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and that's maybe another part of the problem is, I, I don't know if it's a female problem or a whoever problem, but saying no to, you know, once you're in the you're maybe new to a company, you want to say yes, um, yes, yes. And then you get stuck in those yeses. So, um, you know, saying no (laughs) to things and holding your ground. And, and I think, um, you know, that's more and more part of a conversation and, um, maybe people look more and respect that you're saying no, but. All right. Is there anything, any other nuggets of wisdom you want to leave us with Carolyn? I don't think so. I'm like, come back to me in a couple of years and maybe I'll have some wisdom to share. But I feel like, <laughs> like I feel like I'm just figuring it out alongside everybody else, right? Like, uh, like show up, do your best, be nice to each other and, and learn a lot. And that's, you know, take it and move into the next one. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I might have a it next year, but not yet. <laughs> we'll get back to you next year. Yeah. But you have follow left, up. <laughs> this is this, you've given us so many good, pieces of advice for CPG owners that are even dreaming about investments. A lot of people that are going to be listening are people that have nowhere near a million in revenue right now. So I think that this is a good inspirational step that they can really aspire to. So is there anything you'd like to leave the audience with, whether it's a call to action, a final statement, a, anything like that? Um. Well, I guess for the women who are thinking about starting a business or who are thinking about jumping into a startup, like do it. Um, Your presence lets other women know that it's possible. And like, like representation matters, right? Like the more diverse the startup community becomes, the more diverse talent it will attract. And that's a win for businesses. It's a win for individuals. Like it's meaningful. Um, it's harder. I feel like it's harder for women to take that step sometimes because they have families depending on them or children, or they have, you know, a spouse who's the primary breadwinner, or maybe they're the primary breadwinner and they can't give up that salary, but just you trying or making that leap is really meaningful stuff and paves the way for other women to follow. Love it. Love that. Yeah. Love a female (laughs) founder always. And if anyone wants to check out Springdale Ventures, is there a website that they can go to? Yeah. So our website is springdaleventures.com. We are on Instagram at, I believe, at Springdale underscore V, where you can kind of keep up with like our portfolio companies. Hold on, I'm double checking right now. Um, Oh, wait, we changed it to Springdale Ventures. That's way better. Um, where you can kind of keep up with our portfolio companies and see some of their new releases or if their coupon codes, especially as like Christmas comes up. Um, 
so yeah, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, and uh, our website is springdaleventures.com. You'll be able to check out our portfolio companies, our team, and kind of see you know what we're up to and what we're about. Awesome. Well, Caroline, thank you so much. This was such a great talk. Thanks for joining us today. Of course. Happy to, to join y'all. And also just nice to see you again. Ooh, My Social Circle is a CPG agency-driven podcast based out of Austin, Texas. We're excited to share more behind-the-scene insights, chats with industry leaders, and whatever else we learn along the way. Follow us on Instagram at umaimarketing or check out our website, umaimarketing.com. Catch you back here soon.